Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Twitter and everyone else are dealing with new factors, right? Fake news and, you know, hacking and banning and suspending and all these vocabulary words, purging, that have entered the, you know, vocabulary of the everyday user on social media. And it has caused uh, a great amount of concern because both for the leader as well as the followers here, we're seeing different behaviors taking place. And unfortunately, the, and fortunately, I should say, and unfortunately, the internet and social media are so crucial, so crucial to elections uh, nowadays. But now, today, it is the primary way in which we reach out to voters that any suspension or any delay of communication could hurt a candidate significantly. And unfortunately, the actions of limiting the New York Post articles, whether it be true or not, uh, definitely hurt uh, the campaign and suspending the accounts of uh, the White House press secretary. These actions are unprecedented. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. The age of this social media campaign has hit its stride, and it continues to claim victims and victors along the supercomputing highway. You just heard part of my interview coming up with Dr. Ravneet or Ravi Singh, who has launched his own unique and timely product, a website that analyzes, yes, analyzes President Donald Trump's tweets in real time. Dr. Ravneet is an expert on social media and technology and will comment on lots including the high-tech lynching of recent New York Post coverage of Joe Biden and son Hunter and their alleged dalliances with powerful overseas figures in pursuit of a big payday. Dr. Singh himself is no stranger to controversy, having had his own reported brushes with the law on campaign financing in the past, but he's here to tell us about his new website, Twitterism.com, which must be one of a kind. I can identify seven types of tone of Donald Trump. Joy, fear, anger, sad, confident, analytical, and tentative. And on my website, it can actually tell you the mood of Donald Trump. So it'll tell you right now that Donald Trump is you know, expressing this kind of mood right now. Dr. Singh has operated as a social media campaign guru he has referred to himself as the campaign guru in over 20 countries for many high-profile leaders and heads of state. Nearly 10 years after running a groundbreaking, high-intensity social media campaign for Enda Kenny and his Fingale party in Ireland, which saw the party swept to electoral victory and forming a new government, Dr. Singh breaks his silence and tells us what went on behind the scenes and about his part in Fingal pulling off an historic win in Ireland in the shadow of the 2008 global financial crisis. He was hungry to learn this technology, uh, to be able to reach out to the masses, to win the hearts and minds of the Irish people and let them know that the Fine Gael was the best party to help them at that time. 
I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. Well, I'm delighted to welcome you. Hope you're all doing well. There's a lot packed into this show with my guest, Dr. Ravneet Singh, who is an expert on social media and technology. He has launched a website that analyzes Donald Trump's tweets in real time on Twitterism.com. Yes, that's true. He analyzes Donald Trump's tweets in real time on Twitterism.com. Now, one thing to know, Dr. Singh is proud to proclaim himself a conservative, turban-wearing Sikh American, raised by his proud and hardworking parents who came to America from India. We began our conversation with Dr. Singh, telling us a wee bit about his exceedingly colorful credentials. You were born in the United States, the son of parents who immigrated from India and as you put it yourself, you grow up in the cornfields of Illinois, in the village of Presbury, which is near Aurora, Illinois. I've been to Aurora, and that's <laughs> outside the wonderful, windy city of Chicago. Yes, great, great Irish population. Up. They dyed the, the river green on yeah. St. Patrick's Day. I, I, that's I, what I've been told. I wear a green turban on St. Patrick's Day, so just to let you know. <laughs> I think we're going to have a good interview. <laughs> you were born in the midst of cornfields. Is that correct? Is that true, or is that just? Funny? I think that's just a, that's a, my my parents put me out. Uh, you know, they, when they came to America, they had very little. But uh, I wasn't born exactly in the cornfield, but I was born in uh, in a proper hospital. But I I think they've. Uh, They've used their words kindly there. Right. Any potato fields in Illinois? No potato fields, but you know we we do love Irish potatoes. But I, I tell you, we, there are, is a lot of corn in Illinois. I mean, I, if you ever go to Illinois, it's very very flat, right? So uh, I, it's it's you you'll see a lot of corn, and and we would we live down the outskirts, right? We lived west of Chicago. Presbury was a village, literally. It was it was called a village outside the city parameters of the city of Aurora, and you, literally, in, you could literally just see cornfields. That's all you, all you could see. <laughs> you were the first Sikh with uncut hair and a turban to attend and eventually graduate from a USA military academy. Yeah, that's the right. First in American history. Yes. Uh, in fact, Ronald Reagan actually signed the legislation into law, allowing me to graduate with a full military honor as a second lieutenant uh, in the military academy here in the United States. Until that time, Sikhs were not allowed to enter the U.S. armed forces. And as you know, given our relationship with the British, Sikhs were recruited you know, as a military force for the British colonial army uh, for many years, so at, at one time even comprising one-third of the British colonial army. So Sikhs have had a 
long-standing history of military tradition. So my parents thought it was only appropriate that I, I attend military academy, but they had no idea I would be the first and to, the, to this day, the last to attend actually a military academy. But since then, legislation has changed in 2016, where Sikhs now are able to serve with the military with a turban. So it took that long. But I, by that time, I, I'm too old now. I can't join the forces. <laughs> okay, so Dr. Singh is our man to tell us more about this incredible stage in our social media revolution. And then he'll tell us about his new website, twitterism.com. John, we're, we're all facing a new digital lifestyle, right? And COVID has made us all forced to get more technically savvy, right? Um, so we, we, you know, life is about adapting and, 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 you know, very clearly we, technology can aid in accelerating on the way we live, right? Whether it be in health, whether it be in business, whether it be in any facet. So I think social media is here to stay. The question is, will it be a utopia or dystopia? <laughs> what do you think? I pray it'd be a utopia. You know, my 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 days being in Ireland in 2011. You know, working with the Finnegal, I believed in the utopia, and and so did uh, the, your great Tishik and and Kenny. So I, I saw the potential. It was the first really digital revolution that we had back then in Ireland. So I saw firsthand how the people of Ireland embraced this. I saw firsthand in Tyreek Square how people embrace change and use the internet to revolt. It's unfortunate fortunate that we have now started having some new gatekeepers that are sort of trying to, you know, uh, court and use the internet to, uh, to a, a place where it's becoming much more difficult to be able to voice your concerns freely without complying to a new set of rules and guidelines. And it's these rules and guidelines that are being de determined by man that actually are hurting social media. It's not social media itself. Well, we're going to talk about uh, your role in Enda Kenny's campaign. That's fascinating, <laughs> and I think there's a backstory to that. But you not only for Enda Kenny, but you worked for in campaigns in Malaysia, Brazil, Latin America. So you have a very big story to tell us about. But we'll just stop there at gatekeepers and social media. There's been a big story lately about the Biden campaign and the New York Post revelations. Correct. Is that what you're referring? Well, to? yeah, I think I think, but these the, these changes have gone back several times. I mean, Twitter, being one of the social media platforms out there, you know, has you know changed its policy about 15 times since its conception, right? And about five of those policies have been changed during the uh, you know during the Donald Trump administration. So you know, Twitter and everyone else are dealing with new new factors, right? Fake news and, you know, hacking and banning and suspending and all these vocabulary words, purging, that have entered the, you know, vocabulary of the everyday user on social media. And it has caused uh, a great amount of concern because both for the leader as well as the followers here, we're seeing different behaviors, um, you know, taking place. And unfortunately, the, and fortunately, I should say, and unfortunately, the internet and social media are so crucial, so crucial to elections uh, nowadays. You know, back in the old days in 2011, it wasn't front and center. It was a, a major component. But now, today, it is the primary way in which we reach out to voters that any suspension or any delay of communication 
could hurt a candidate significantly. And unfortunately, the actions of limiting the New York Post articles, whether it be true or not, uh, definitely hurt uh, the campaign. And suspending the accounts of uh, the White House uh, press secretary, these actions are unprecedented. Do you think it's a fair charge when people say many of the large social media platforms, most of them are large to survive, are socially liberal and they have it in for conservative voices? I I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Because the platforms were built on technology, right? And for the longest time, this platform, right? And we have to define to your audience as well as you're well aware, platform and publisher are two different terms that sometimes get co-mingled in the public atmosphere, you know. And these technology social media platforms, or what we call SMPs, have been around for a long time, built on similar behaviors, right? They've been built on the notion that you can post something, you can say something, you can voice things, and these platforms will not get involved. When they get involved and they change the the content, or they limit content, or they suspend content, then we get into a blurry line of publishers and the role of publishing. And in that case, the people who are running these social media platforms tend to make policies that could indicate that they are being some form of bias because they're imposing their will by making these policies according to their what's in their head. And I don't think they do it intentionally, but sometimes people could make an argument that they do. I I fear that a lot of them just haven't you know, I hate to say this, but in America, we, we don't travel the world. You know, we don't realize that social media is not just limited to the boundaries of the United States. Social media is a global platform. It unites the world. That's why I believe in the utopia of the Internet, because every language, I mean, there's over 60, you know, 38 plus languages on Twitter. You know, it's amazing. So the question is, I think these actions by some of these few individuals, whether they be best intended or not intended, they have hurt, unfortunately, the way social media platforms have evolved and have started to blur the line between platform and publisher. You take recent episodes, uh, the New York Times story on Donald Trump's tax returns, That got reposted multiple times worldwide on social media platforms. Those stories were not pulled. And then when it came to the Hunter Biden story published by the New York Post, that got jammed up in social media and the gatekeeper stepped in and prevented it from being published. And then we had a White House aide had her account uh, suspended. So, Well, John, you're exactly correct. I mean, the timeline doesn't make sense, right? What, what happens on one side should happen to the other. But these policies are occurring, not necessarily, you know, when liberals or, you know, Democrats are doing anything. They, they change that. Policy changes seem to be taking place when, when it actually, when Republicans or conservatives are doing it. And that's the worrisome, right? That's where I think everyone is starting to go, whoa, there are some major problems here, right? You can make a policy change. You can make a, a terms and services change on your platform. But what is sort of the justification? Why didn't you do it back then, like you said clearly, when, when Donald Trump had his tax returns? Why are you doing it now, just weeks before the election? You know, and and this causes great concern because these tech giants, as everyone's labeling them, are literally that they have the ability to squash 
the voice of followers and limit their interactions. And that is really the power here. It's not, allow, not, not allowing them not to speak. It's about the ability for them to be able to circulate their message. The inability to retweet or share a message hurts more than actually just the, the ability to put it out there. And that has been the, the biggest uh, travesty of the, of the situation. Um, because when you limit people's voices, you call into fundamental questions from Locke and Hobbes and, and down to the very essence of Aristotle about democracy and saying, wait, don't we have this right to speak freely? And these companies are saying, yes, you can speak freely, but we don't know if we'll allow you to necessarily share what you say <laughs> with others. I mean, the odd thing and ironic thing maybe in the New York Post expose is that when these platforms stepped in to prevent publication, in its own way, the message got right. even further. And it was the talk of a lot of the cable shows and people were sharing it through other platforms. So it sort of almost gave more attention to it than it might have got otherwise. That That's the weird and odd Yeah, thing. so that's why I'm saying, John, I, I think the argument is sort of muted when they say, oh, they did it intentionally. I, I don't believe, uh, you know, and, and again, I'm a utopian at heart. I don't believe that people intend to actually do something incorrectly. I think, you know, when, when the internet came out, it was sort of a wild, wild west. When social media came out, it was a wild, wild west. We're now entering the second or third phase of, of these revolutions where basically now people are saying, wait, hold on you know what is too much what is too little you know how far can we go how far you know how far do we do not go and we are now facing a, you know a a big challenge where there has to be a hybrid between what the platforms can do and what the governments will allow and what the people actually want. And this trifecta is causing mass confusion because if it wasn't for the voice of the people on Twitter, they would have not changed their policy just less than 24 hours after they changed it. They re Twitter reversed their policy on the New York Post. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that was because of people like you and other journalists and everyone else who have a voice out there who are trying to get to the truth of the matter and speak loudly and that voices were heard i mean if if twitter did not pay attention to those voices i don't think they would have changed their policies and i i don't think it was the threat of anything else they realized that wait they have to listen to their audience yeah they were coming under overwhelming pressure from the audience out there as a practical matter who inside these organizations decides if posting is not suitable for their website or for their platform? Well, there's two opposite ends of the thing. On the one side, there has to be policy that has been made, and they're usually making policy based upon or reacting to situations that are occurring within the platform, right? They're saying, oh, we weren't aware of this. So, for example, when, you know, uh, when Robert Williams passed on, you know, the question is about allowing people to to you know, not say anything about the actor uh, and allow his family to grieve. You know, um, how, what do you do with a Twitter account when someone passes on? Do you delete their tweets? Do you keep it up? Do you allow people to reshare them? You know, what is the right way to memorialize what they've done? Um, so. To, 
Twitter and all these other social media platforms are actually facing bigger and bigger challenges because they're saying, wait, people are living on these pro uh, platforms, all right? I mean, everyone right now, right, turns on their social media on their phone or, you know, behind their desktop at least once, if not more, uh, daily. And as a result, they're becoming dependent upon these networks. So the social media platforms have this problem where they're using real-life examples to actually shape the policies real quickly. I mean, if you looked at terms and services of Twitter at version one, it was just mimicked after, you know, uh, Flickr and it was no more, I think it was less than a thousand words. So now these things have gotten more elaborate, more, you know, uh, more more critical of uh, based on situations. Now, on the opposite end of the stick, there's the enforcement committee that has to then enforce these terms and services. And, you know, you don't want a government to do it um, because then it becomes problematic because, you know, do you use U.S. law? Do you use Irish law? Do you use EU law? Do you use law from India? Do you use law from Russia? So it becomes very, very fundamentally difficult. So some of them have created committees. Some of the founders have just overrided, right? You saw Jack Dorsey, you know, quickly overriding his own, you know, own committee. Right. So they're saying, whoa, whoa. So you use the word committee. So so there's actual human beings involved in some smoking back rooms or whatever. <laughs> you you depict a great right with all a bunch of computers. I, I I don't I don't know, John, if that's the case, but I do know that once they make up a policy, they do write a piece of code right? Or an algorithm, okay? That's usually built on what we call machine learning. And then it basically searches out um, key phrases or keywords. And if these two or three things happen in conjunction, they will then go ahead and limit an account. So I'll give you a perfect example. My account on Twitter has been, uh, on, on promoting ads, has been suspended, even though my dissertation was on Donald Trump's tweets, because I guarantee you that it's not someone in Twitter just saying, oh, we don't want the truth to come out. But maybe it is. I, I hope it isn't. But the utopian in me is saying, ah, the algorithm probably misread it and thought I was promoting Donald Trump, right? And political political ads are now banned on Twitter as of this year. Uh, you can no longer advertise on Twitter. Um, so that now becomes an issue, you know, and now I'm trying to let them know that, hey, listen, this is a scientific study, I, you know, and, and, and no one is responding. So, you know, there's a portion of me goes, well, maybe it's because I've been tweeting about the president so much, but we don't know. But usually a machine or an algorithm is behind it. And then, of course, yes, you're probably right. There's someone in some smoky room probably <laughs> pressing the buttons going, yes and no. And then the problem is by, you saw by Senator Cruz in the United States, you know, uh, Congress saying, you know, these people are are Democrats who are running these little committees, you know, in these organizations, and that's a problem. You have released a new website, Twitterism.com, which has analyzed over 50,000 of President Donald Trump's tweets in real time using artificial intelligence and the tone in which they were delivered. That's a tall order. <laughs> well, no, this has uh, been four years of my life's work, and I'm very excited to share it with your audience and and uh, and share the website openly. It's free to the public. It's twitterism.com, twitterism.com. And the website it was designed to figure out tone, 
you know. So, John, I can say, you know, we're, we're doing this by audio, and I can say, John, I like you. And you can say, okay, that's nice, but I can say, I like you. You can't really read my facial expression, but by just the sound, you can hear that those two like yous, even though the context is the same, are different. Correct. So what happens is tone is really the willing attitude of the of the intention by the leader, right? Or what we sometimes call the mood. And so it's very difficult to figure this out in social media. And my study was the first one to sort of shed light that there is a way to identify the social media voice and specifically the tone using artificial intelligence. So I'm not doing this just by because I say so or some you know by some survey that I did. This is mathematically proven, 95% correct, you know, based on statistics and multiple correlations that show that tone is not only significant, but I can identify seven types of tone of Donald Trump: joy, fear, anger, sad, confident, analytical and tentative. And on my website, it can actually tell you the mood of Donald Trump. So it'll tell you right now that R Donald Trump is you know, expressing this kind of mood right now. So right now, Donald Trump is currently angry. <laughs> right now, uh, <laughs> no surprise there, right? But 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 believe it or not, anger is one of the least uh, tones that he's ever used. So um, you know you can you can see here that you know his his anger is based on his last tweet that he just stated uh, about the Democrats, um, and here at twelve nineteen a.m. October seventeenth, and you can hear you know and see the engagement response that is happening by the tone. So I believed very firmly that there was a correlation, John, between the way we say something, um, how we actually say it, and what we say, right? I thought that followers really respond more to how we say it, you know, what hashtags we use, what lingo we use, and more importantly, what tone we use. And it actually was correct in Donald Trump's case. Tone really matters. Quite a bit of mojos and little smiley faces and so yeah. on. Yeah, and, and do they tell anything about his tone, or or could they be all faking? Well, you know, he doesn't use a lot of emojis, but when he does, he uses the U.S. flag emoji the most. But out of all the tweets that I analyzed, I found out that you know his tone, like he, the most the most dominant tone. Now, this might be a, a disbeliever to a lot of your listeners, but the the big dominant tone that he he does all the time, believe it or not, John is joyful. He's joyful the most. I, I mean, I'm chuckling. He doesn't come across as joyful, but you got to give the president great credit. He's got huge self-confidence and uh, for a man what is he 74 now he's obviously got great yeah, genes yeah. and despite what the naysayers will say he is a successful businessman yeah and, and you're right confident is actually the second most dominant tone that he uses so you're exactly correct um and you know and anger and fear and sadness are probably the least tones that he uses see john we have a problem the media right now picks and chooses what what tweets they want the public to hear. So there's really two audiences out there. There's one that are in the Twitter sphere, which I tell everyone, you should get on Twitter, you should open up an account, because then you really hear from the horse's mouth, right? You know what exactly is going on. And then there are those that are not on Twitter that just get their tweets that fill either breaking news or you know context of a, of a particular story. And unfortunately, those tweets are being picked and you know cherry picked by members of the media. 
And so that's that that's where it becomes very difficult. So I, I always tell people, you know, in today's world, just like you learned how to use a cell phone, if you want to know what's going on in the world and what's actually happening, you have to have a Twitter account. How many tweets on average does he post per day? Well, that's a great question. His frequency, which is what you're talking about, um, is about 14 tweets on, on average since the time he's opened up his account in 2009. Believe it or not, Donald Trump was one of the first people in the world uh, to start using Twitter. So he he's he's a master of this medium. He he really understands it, um, and he's been tweeting, um, you know, over more than fifty six thousand times. And in these the amount of tweets that he has sent out out of these number of amount of tweets, um, you know, he can tweet as high as over 120 tweets a day. People don't give him enough credit for being a master of the media. And you go back in his history, he leveraged old-style media uh, for a lot of successful business and political gains. I'm not saying in a bad way, but he was able to cleverly get his name into the gossip pages the front pages of the New York Post, Daily News. He was able to get himself prime time slots on cable and network shows. And he was constantly tweaking his message. And the media took the bait. Right. No, he, he's extremely clever. He's a, he's a master communicator, right? I, I think he, the, the, the term that I use in social media, sometimes we call them influencers. He's not an influencer. I would call him a social media leader. He has literally set the tone, uh, lack of a better word, for all world leaders to play a role on Twitter. I mean, nowadays, his tweets are actually a part of the daily security briefings for all world leaders because he, he has literally redesigned the platform as a peer-to-peer -peer communication, which you and I would use to talk about, hey, we're drinking a cup of tea or we're drinking a cup of coffee. Now he has re redesigned that platform to actually share with world leaders what he's going to do or not do ahead of time. And he's 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 made diplomacy almost like e-diplomacy, direct, swift, and persuasive, where there's no more any go-betweens, which is causing a lot of concern because digital etiquette has now replaced a lot of traditional protocols that we're really used to as human beings. You know, we're going, wait, whoa, whoa, you aren't, aren't you supposed to go through the Secretary of State or or the ambassador through that? And he's going, no, you know what? I'm the leader. That's the leader. He has a Twitter account. He, <laughs> he or she has a Twitter account. I'm going to just tweet to them. <laughs> and, and this kind of direct peer-to-peer -peer communication is unprecedented. So I would call him a social media leader. I would call him a strategist, uh, but he has definitely mastered Twitter. And my dissertation and my research on Twitterism.com clearly shows that he is a master of increasing follower engagement. I mean, he, he is one of the he is one of the top most followed accounts in the world, right? I mean, next to Justin Bieber, he is in the top. I think he's number seven or number eight now, uh, most followed account in the world. But you go back to his first campaign for president, the one in which he was ultimately elected president, he would hold a rally and he got crowds and crowds of people and the media loved his presentations and the cameras showed up and the ratings went through the roof once Donald Trump 
was on TV. Right. No, you're exactly correct. I mean, his persona as a political candidate in 2016 was much different, you know, when he made the announcement from 15 to 16, because he switched from the persona of a reality, you know, real estate mogul to a political candidate. And, you know, it wasn't his first run. You know, he actually thought about running in 2012. I actually built his first website back then um, with my old company. And um, he didn't decide to run. But even before then, he even thought of running as an independent. So it's always been in the back of his mind to be a public servant. But um, it was only until 2015 and winning the nomination of the grand old party of the Republican Party, the party of Abraham Lincoln in the United States, that he decided to really use Twitter as a cost-effective medium than to do these traditional TV buys and media buys. And by using Twitter and having these rallies, as you clearly indicated, he was able to get more free airtime than any of his other opponents. And as a result, that traditional media actually, you know, propelled him uh, to to win the nomination. And I would argue even propelled him to win the presidency itself. So you worked with Donald Trump? I have not personally, but my company was employed to actually do his website in 2012. And John, you want to hear something really embarrassing? <laughs> I didn't even know I did his website until I did my research. <laughs> and I was doing my dissertation. And one night, I go, wait, I'm looking, there's a, uh, there's a website called the Wayback Machine where you can go back and see, you know, the website. And I'm researching, I'm going, wait, that website looks very familiar. I'm like, that's that one template that we use. Wait, wait, hold on. Let me see. That's, that's our software. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I called up my mother and my father, and they're like, shh, 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 don't tell anyone. Do not tell anyone. You did not. Okay. So, is Twitterism.com just about Donald Trump's Correct. It's, you, can, you can go back, and what's really cool, John, you can click on the emojis and see what, what tweets he was angry in. You can see the tweets right now. In fact, I'll just pull it up again. I mean, the last tweet right now is just saying, just arriving in Prescott, what a crowd. I love Aaron. Arizona. He's in Arizona right now. It's a tentative tone. Uh, the sentiment is positive, and the engagement is only 0.8%. So when he announced that he had COVID-19, for example, uh, we saw that his tweet was actually one of the most favorited tweets Right. of all times. And the reason why that was, it reached the engagement rate of literally over 26.3%. Um, it was just amazing. And um, and it just shows you the power that he has with his audience. Uh, many people can have followers, right? Celebrities can have followers and etc. What's amazing about Donald Trump is that his followers actually engage. And whether they be friend or foe, they tend to love to have a conversation with him on Twitter. And I don't think Donald Trump really cares if it's positive or negative, but all press to him is good press. So all, all tweets and retweets are good retweets for him. And just to dispel any doubt or confusion, he writes these tweets himself. He doesn't have an assistant. Well, that's a, that's a good question. There's, there's a lot of studies out there before I did my academic study and before I got my PhD on this. Can you believe it? I got a PhD on Donald Trump's tweets. But I mean, the, the fact that, you know, many of the studies argued that, you know, in the early days, Donald Trump didn't tweet. Um, I would tend to argue differently. I think he tweeted periodically, especially around like the holiday season or New Year's time. He tend to put his own words in there, especially because of the timing, you know, of the tweets. And back then, there wasn't really much tweeting scheduling software. 
Um, now, I would argue, because of the devices, we know for a fact there are four devices that are being used at any time when Donald Trump's tweets. And on the website, actually on Twitterism, you can actually filter the devices. He tweets from a special iPhone. Um, and then there are tweets coming from other, like tw Twitter web client, and then even from an Android. And, and you'll notice that the tone on these tweets tends to be different, which could make you theorize or even hypothesize that the possibility that someone else is tweeting, right? He's not tweeting on all four devices at the same time. So I think any tweets that come from his iPhone are, I can, you can say with some, some assurity that he it's Donald Trump tweeting himself. He does show that he has compassion, that he has a heart, that he is connected to the world. Does he come across as a narcissist? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, when you go into personality, right, which you're asking me about, you know, there's there's no way through artificial intelligence to determine that. Um, I can say emphatically that when Donald Trump uses tone, he tends to get better engagement with his followers. And I can tell you that when he is more joyful, he gets less engagement. But when he's anger, he gets a more engagement. <laughs> so it is interesting to see, and I don't know, you know, if he, he is conscious of his tone, but he said very something very telling, John, in, in an interview in 2018. He said that if there's one thing that he could improve upon his presidency was that he would fix his tone. So I think he's consciously aware that his tone matters. Um, I don't think he understands how his tone is affecting his tweets. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I did the study and, and, and was able to get the recognition I did from the academia world. And one of the reasons why I built this real-time website to actually show the different tones. I, I, whether or not he is something else in terms of personality, that is all yet to a lot of other factors. But unfortunately, artificial intelligence can only tell us so much. And the math is the math. The data is the data, right, John? You can't argue with that. So so this this is 95%. It's called Pearson Court. It, 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 is, it is statistically accurate, right? So no one can argue this. So this narrative, right, that's out there by the media that he's crazy and angry and sad all the time, you know, this debunks a lot of that. Well, it's Twitterism.com. Donald Trump is a bit of an enigma, but he's a very smart, intelligent, strong leader, probably best known by an inner circle, which would have to be his family and closest friends. Yeah, no, he, in fact, you're, you're, you know, he follows very few people, right? He only follows about, about 50 people. And, and in that 50 circle, he follows all of his family members. I mean, uh, from that standpoint, he's very loyal. He's, he, you know, he follows a lot of the conservative right news, uh, broadcasters here on Fox and et cetera. But uh, overall, Donald Trump, you know, has a very close knit uh, circle. Um, I think Twitter is a major tool in his arsenal in getting out his message from, you know, the time that when he was a businessman, as you said, to the time when he ran for office, as the time that he's a world leader. People call Donald Trump a great disruptor. And one of the other things you frequently hear is, why doesn't he just tone down the rhetoric? Why doesn't it become nicer and sweeter? But maybe the answer to that is, it's this toughness, if you will, that has got him where he is. And we're in a very polarized time uh, politically. 
and that it's only somebody like Donald Trump who can get these changes made. Well, you're, 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 it's a great insight um, because one of the things I also tested for was what I called tone intensity. And on the website, you can actually see the intensity of the tone on the right-hand side. So, like, for example, throughout the day today, he's been tentative, he's been analytical, he's been confident, he's been joyful, but he's been 69.8% more intense in, ten in, in being tentative. And so we've noticed that the intensity of Donald Trump actually changes the direction uh, or the polarity of engagement, meaning that the engagement tends to go in opposite direction when he's too intense, you know. After this wee break, Dr. Singh will bring us behind the scenes of the social media campaign he ran in 2011 for Ireland's Fine Gael and its leader, Enda Kenny, who would be swept into power as the then new Taoiseach or Prime Minister of Ireland, now, this was before it all changed again with the surge of Sinn Féin, the rise of independence, the Greens, and new groups and parties like Into, and with some fresh challenges for Fine Gael and its old Civil War era adversary, Fianna Fáil. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. First of all, I love the Irish people. I, it, was, it was a great honor uh, to participate uh, in Ireland. Ireland was ahead of its time, um, and the Fine Gael realized very clearly in order for them to win the majority, they, I think they, if quote, don't quote me on this, but I think they won by, we basically had to win about, um, to, in order to gain power, we won about 76 seats. Um, and uh, in, when in doing so, the Fine Gael, uh, led at that time by, you know. Are you a card carrying member of uh, Fine Gael? <laughs> I am not. I am not. But, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 did, I did fall in love. I, I fell in love with, uh, I fell in love with the, the, the fish and chips. The, 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 I fell in love with the, you know, walking down, uh, you know, down to the headquarters. But, it, you know, it was, it was an amazing, amazing time because the Internet had just come out. We had just seen the power of the uh, social media. And here I was, you know, in Ireland, right, with turban on my head, you know, beard on my face. And the Finnegal had recruited me to come and help them um, to teach, uh, you know, a team out there. And, and you're, you know, you're, you're going to be one of the first to know this because I'm no longer under NDA. Um, but for five years, I couldn't speak about the campaign. And I will tell you, my job was very simple, was to train an elite group of young Finnegalans that would automatically be able to go ahead and mobilize the digital vote. And we literally ran campaigns um, out of that headquarters for every single member uh, of the Finnegal party, not just for Enda. And Enda was phenomenal. He had the vision, he had the leadership and foresight that technology was going to transform the way you participated in politics. And um, I admire him because not only did he um, understand this, but not only did he recruit me, but he, he told me very clearly, he says, whatever I need to learn, Ravi, you let me know and I'll learn it. And I remember back then we were just, the iPad had, you know, really had become prominent. And I told him, I said, I'm going to need you to carry an iPad around with you. And, um, and when, when he decided not to debate, I don't know if you remember that back then, he wouldn't want, he didn't want to debate. 
Um, we did the very first online town hall meeting where we did a live broadcast, the fir- very first of its kind in Irish history. So despite some of what some some bloggers out say out out you know say out there in Ireland and some negative press that I got afterwards, at the end of the day. The proof is in the pudding. Finnegal won by one of the largest majorities. They, he, he got, re, he was one of the first Taoiseachs to get really reelected again. And, um, I think a lot of it was because of the phenomenal job of the Finnegal political party and that young team, that young digital team that we had that just wanted to see a, a digital revolution take place. And they were so adamant about making it happen. It really hats off to those, those kids. I, I, I wish I could have. I wish I could have just taken all those great Irish talent and moved them to Washington, D.C., because they were just so good. How did you team up? How did they find out about you? Well, you know, we were tied up with Microsoft, and I had just done the deal with Microsoft, and um, I was talking about the power of the cloud, which now everyone knows about. But back in 2009 and 2010, it was relatively new. And this whole notion that you could run a campaign, you know, without having servers and computers in your office was just amazing, right? And so we had launched this new technology, and I had just gotten off the coattails of doing the campaign for um, Nobel Peace Prize winner Juan Manuel Santos, who became a two-time president of Colombia. And doing his campaign in 2010, I think the technology had become prominent. I know Microsoft has a, a big headquarters out there. We offered the technology to both. We offered it to Finnafail. We offered it to everyone else. We were nonpartisan. And I see that Martin has gotten elected now. So congratulations to the new new prime yeah, to the new T-shirt. Yeah, it's great. I mean, they they were they. I think they just didn't you know keep up with the times. But I think they they finally caught wind of that technology was important in social media was important so i was happy to see a lot of changes um in the next go round. i think it was so what exactly did you do uh, what were the nuts and bolts were you sitting in conference rooms or in offices off o'connell street dublin or showing them how to send out retweet stuff or to how to get messages on facebook what kind of messaging uh, very simple i was providing software and technology right um there was some exaggeration that i did a lot more but like i said i was under nda for five years so i, I never really we have a bit of yeah, exactly. And then, then the second thing was that even I think I even showed up in the Irish Times just recently this year. They quoted me and referenced our, our efforts back in 2011. And, and there's been no one's reached out to me to clarify these statements that they've made on me. And 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 I'll be more than happy to. Well, clarify. Yeah, I here. will. One, we provided training and software. And second of all, most importantly, we were showing best practices of how to reach the, the voters in a more cost-effective way using social media. This had never been done before. We're, look, we're in 2020. This was in 2011. Can you imagine the Fine Gael had the foresight in 2010 to realize that technology was going to be center and heart and center of reaching the Irish voters? And, and they were exactly right. I think people were frustrated. Um, you know, they were frustrated with just getting the news from traditional media out there. And people wanted to voice and participate. And one of the most important things that I shared in tactics when I trained the digital team was very simply put, you have to listen. You have to listen to what people are also saying. You just can't use social media to spit out things. And Finna Gale was hungry to listen. You know, I don't know if that's the Finnegale party today, but back in 2011, let me tell you, I got to meet, you know, a lot, um, if not all, but majority of the members and all the candidates that were running. And I was humbled Mm -hmm. by seeing those that wanted to serve the great country of Ireland the way they wanted to. 
It was amazing. How long did you stay in Ireland? I was there on and off uh, for, you know, about, I would say, I would say about 30 or 40 days in and off, you know, kind of deal between my other travels. It wasn't the only campaign that we were running. Uh, we were a global company. So you'd fly yeah, in. Exactly. Fly and, 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 when, and you'd stay in Dublin. Yeah, Dublin, wherever. wherever they, you know, et cetera. And I would automatically just, I would, I, you know, we, we created a system of communication in Irish politics. They were still relying on traditional polling. When you mean traditional polling, you mean by man on the street interviews, telephone calls. Correct. And the president of the party, I, I, his name escapes me, I think Tom uh, Curran, I, I, Tom, I believe it was, uh, and other people realized that the real-time voice of the people was more important than the filtered voice of just a population over a sample. And that was powerful. And they realized that they had to change and they had to be equipped. What saddens me is that a lot of that apparatus that we created was not carried over, unfortunately, into his administration, nor was it carried over in the next election. But I do know that the heart and the mind of the Fine Gael party in 2011, without, with 100% certainty, was there because they really wanted to solve the problems and some of the challenges that were facing the Irish people right there. And I had never met a leader in, in all, all the campaigns that I worked on who was so sincere. I mean, Enda, Enda just was so humble and so sincere. He was hungry to, to, to learn this technology, uh, to be able to reach out to the masses, to, to win the hearts and minds of the Irish people, and let them know that the Fine Gael was the best party uh, to help them at that time. Well, we'll get back to that in a moment, but I'm just trying to get a further grasp of this social media outreach when you were in Ireland. Was it through Facebook, Twitter, and on the other platforms? And did you have distinct audiences? Like, it's one thing trying to reach young people at college in Ireland, but it's quite another trying to reach some farmer in West Cork who may not have a social media. You know, I remember one of the farmers up there said, you know, one of the representative, he goes, none of my guys are on Twitter, you know? And I told him, I said, they might not be on Twitter, but or they might not be on Facebook, but they will know somebody who is on those platforms. And it is that relationship that we want to influence. So in other words, they may know somebody who is on it. You send out a message, Fingale is here for West Cork, and that'll be read out in the pub. That's correct. And I, I will tell you a tactic now that, you know, it's nine years later, that the Finnafail, you know, did not do and 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 they weren't aware of how to do it. They were trying to blast out one message out to everybody. Yeah. Oh. And and let me tell you. Ireland is not is not one country. It, you go to Southern Ireland, you go to West Ireland, you go to East Ireland, you go to Gaul. It's completely different, right? There are little differences in each and every single city. And one of the things that we tried to do was not try to do a one message fits all Ireland approach. We actually tried to listen to the feedback that was happening on social media in each area and also tailor messages that were in align to the Fine Gael, uh, political ideology um, and conservative principles in those certain areas. And that's what we tried to do. And I think that was one of the secret sauces of why the campaign was so successful, because it was the content 
and um, it was also the like like I said first it was the team, um, and maybe maybe first even before that would I would say would be Enda having the vision to have it the team and then definitely the content. It's interesting to hear you say that every part of the country has different needs, different messages, and so on. As the late Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill once said, "All politics is local." I'm wondering, even though it's a small we country Ireland, how do you gather up all those messages from individual parishes, even with social media? That's why we're grateful to have computers, right? I mean, um, you know, in social media, we have lingo, right? And uh, one thing I loved about the Irish people that I learned myself was I remember telling my mom, who was raised by Irish nuns, by the way, she was raised by Loretto nuns. Um, and she, she, she told me, she said, Ravi, she goes, my grammar was awful. You know, my punctuation was, it was, you know, horrific. I mean, it was just awful. And, um, my mother told me, she goes, boy, you know, as an American, you mix your words and in Ireland, they're very more particular. And I realized how bad my grammar was. And we realized that not using proper punctuation in certain sections of Ireland actually hurt us. You know, one of the interesting things is when Enda actually did tweet, right. And did participate in one of the debates, we tweeted actually in uh, Irish, you know, in Gaelic. Or what's, the, what's the language again? I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We actually sent out translations of whatever he was saying in English in Gaelic. So we, we, it was, it was amazing. And everyone's like, why are we doing that? Only a per- small percentage of the country still speaks that. I said, it doesn't matter because why? It's the national pride. It is the language of the people. It's the language of the country. You know, and he is running for to become leader of the country. And so we have to show that these principles are, are, are important. And the best way to, to show them is to by actually illustrating them. And that was always my constant theme where, wherever I was in Colombia, Malaysia, in, in um, Argentina and Brazil, whatever country I worked in, I always used to tell them your voice your voice as a leader is what's going to resonate. I don't know Basa. I don't know how to speak French. I don't know how to speak German. I don't know how to speak you know, Spanish. But I do know that if you say it, it'll have more power than some you know, aide or assistant speaking on social media. And it wasn't until I went to school and when I attended MIT and learned about system dynamics and communication feedback loops from my professor, uh, Ed Schiappa, who um, is one of the leading authorities in rhetoric. Um, Ed, Ed t- told me, look, per, you know, persuasion and feedback loops happen in communication because of a relationship of trust. And that trust is created on the internet very quickly by the way you create a branded profile picture, by the way you use different hashtags, by the way you use tone, and etc. Did you advise Ender Kenny what to put into his tweets? Ender Never. 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 I would structure them they would give me the content. I would automatically reformat it. And that was the most beautiful things. And they had a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He had a lot to say, right? And, 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 I, and you guys in Ireland tend to be a little, once, once you have a little couple Guinnesses, <laughs> I had a cold once and I remember everyone told me, go get a Guinness, Robbie, you'll be fine. You think your social media campaign, obviously they, they swept to victory. 
was that instrumental in sweeping them to victory? Have there been any studies? Yeah, and there that? actually was a study. Uh, we, we wrote a study in the European Union by the EPP, the uh, European People's Party, actually did a case study. And it's in, it's in, it's in the academia world as, as, as a result. I mean, you can't argue the, the statistics and the numbers, right? If you look at the accounts um, and how we did it, like I said, I think the, the sad part it was is that it wasn't continued on um, because you know you know you sort of did it and then it, they dropped it off. Kudos to uh, Enda because he understood that he I, he's one of my favorite. Um, he he understood it and that's one of the reasons why you know when there was some negative press and when they got hacked and some other issues happened, I kept my mouth shut because out of loyalty um, and primarily because that's what you do you know in in politics. Yeah, you, well, back then we actually the website in early on got hacked, you know, um, and they found out it was actually done by an, an anonymous uh, individual, and and we prepared for all scenarios. So it's it, it's it, it, those were interesting times, you know. And how did you handle his campaign in terms of Enda Kenny's imaging and the party's imaging? Because you used the word conservative at that particular juncture, they were seen as mostly conservative how was that handled they certainly weren't left-leaning i i think a, a lot of the ad agencies out there that are hired for politics they understand traditional branding and the look and feel and people pay a lot of attention to that but unfortunately in social media world the branding will only get you so far Right. Um, there were things that we did that were differently. For example, we used the back of the Twitter page, right, or what you call the wallpaper um, of your Twitter account back then or your Facebook account to change as a countdown every time we got closer to the election. So you'll notice that, you know, it'll be like 15 days to election, 14 days to election, 13 days to election. The other thing that we used a lot of was video, which in 2011 was, you know, not well-known or deployed in terms of social media content. Um, you know, the manifesto was very complex and, you know, I, I had never seen politics with such detailed plans and, and to be honest, just boring to me, but you know, <laughs> no one ever reads them. So to simplify them was also important. I think one of the things that we, you know, we, we won an award actually, believe it or not, for having it be one of the best video game websites um, in the world. We actually deployed a Finnegale video game, um, and we actually had a greeting card system that you could actually send greeting cards on Valentine's Day. So, I mean, we did a lot of interesting tactics that were the first for Irish history and for online politics in Ireland. And what was what is the most important takeaway out of all of it is that the people engaged back. As part of that feedback loop from my MIT professor said, they, they engaged back. We just didn't deploy something and then no one responded. They did, which shows to me that the people of Ireland love their country, love their politics, and they want to be participants. You know, and world leaders and political parties need to understand that when you campaign, it's not about getting your message out. It's also about getting your message out and then hearing back, John, from the people. You know, and 
and being able to tweak it here and there. And like I said, nowadays, you know, literally, you know, nine years later, almost a decade after the campaign, we're now seeing people understanding what is the power of social media listening and why is that crucial? Because it's really a two-way communication, right? Social media isn't just about, you know, promoting a message. It's also about listening to what the followers actually really have to say. Even though it's a small, we country Ireland, a pro-life issue was to the fore and it still is. Enda Kenny said point blank, yes, many people feel an analyst that he abandoned that position with his maneuvers and his support of legislation that led to the legalization of abortion in Ireland. So I'm wondering, were you aware of that at the time? Did it come up, the pro-life issue? Because it was a, it's a hot-button issue in Ireland then and now. Now, of course, abortion has been legalized, sadly. Yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, back in my memory bank, and I can't really comment upon any issue because, you know, um, I can't recall, but I will tell you one story maybe that can speak to the character of how principled the man was during the campaign. Um, I remember we had to announce the campaign and um, the traditional way was to do it behind the desk and et cetera. And um, I told and I said, I think you should mix it up a little bit, you know, and he says, what do you recommend? I said, you remember that uh, tea shop that we drink tea in all the time and down the street? He goes, yeah. I said, why don't we film there and have you announce the, the website and tell people that I, I forgot the slogan, but enough is enough or something like that. And I said, why don't you tell the people actually how you feel and um, like how you explained it to me over a, over a cup of tea? And so one of the things is that he did was we went down to that, that, that tea shop and we actually drank a cup of tea and we filmed it and it made the headline news. I, I think you can probably Google it and figure it out, but it was actually front page, right? That end up announces his campaign from, from, you know, by drinking a cup of tea, you know, and the, the amount of, advertising dollars he got out of that video far surpassed the the views that we got on on the video and it just tells me that he he had values right he had traditional values but he also was flexible enough to understand the will of the people you know and understand what he had to do you know i don't know how many leaders in europe at that time would have actually gone down to a you know a coffee or tea shop to, to to announce their official campaign but you can't address the matter of his pro life credentials unfortunately unfortunately john i don't i don't recall it's been over 10 years but i, I there's nothing that comes to mind that i can speak to of. i'm wondering was there any tweets or anything on social media back then which might have spoke to that among socially conservative voters. And that would be a very big vote. Uh, you send out a tweet to a constituency that's clearly pro-life and pro-family. Hey, we're with you all the way. We're pro-life. That would shore up that vote. And it sounds like a cynical way of looking at politics, but that's just how it works. 
In in Ireland, there's a lot of emphasis on the details, and and I will tell you this is that every time you know um, we had to do anything or, or or put out anything, you know they were loyal to the principles and the and the politics of the of what the Fine Gael political party stood for, um, and you know I, I, I you know there was nice thing is that there was never a need to be negative, there was never a need to do anything or say anything. While even though there were comments and and bashing that would go back and forth. I always, always stressed, and I was happy to see that uh, Tom and and the rest of the party adopted this, that they adopted a positive campaign online. So that made me happy. Well, clearly you did something uh, extraordinary, and we could talk for a long time about it. We may have to have you back. You know, John. Let me let me let me add one comment to that. Let me just say one thing. I, I've worked for a lot of world leaders, uh, nine to be specific, and I've worked on a, little, a lot of political campaigns, and I would just tell the Irish people and tell the people of any country that you cannot judge a man by just the one simple action, right? It's a series of the some actions that really judge him. And, um, you know, in politics, you try to do everything, but you can't really accomplish everything. There's, there's always a story behind it. So, um, you know, I, I would never, I would, I have enough respect for Enda uh, that I would never tell people to remember him for the, what he did not do, but rather what he did do. And um, I think he did some remarkable things for the, for the great country of Ireland. Well, that's very kind of you, Dr. Singh. A lot of people abandoned the party after they turned more socially liberal and Fianna Fáil obviously lost a lot of votes. The situation today, as you probably know, is that uh, the last election was uh, pretty unique. Sinn Féin had a surge in vote and then we had uh, the other parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, sharing power ultimately with the Greens. How does it look for Trump versus Biden? I, I think I think Trump is being underestimated in the media. I, I think there's a silent voter group out there that it will come in through the last minute that don't want to recognize themselves as Trumpers. Um, and I think it's going to be closer than what people think. Um, I, I can already see both sides teeing up the need to count votes after the election. So I would tell the whole world, if not everyone in the United States, that this won't be over on election day. I think this is going to be one of the one one of the few elections for the history books. But uh, whatever happens after this election will redefine American politics. And if they want to get more information or insights, go to twitterism.com. Yes, twitterism.com, or if anyone wants to know what I'm doing or what I'm researching, they can look at ravisingh.com. Um, we're, we're hoping to publish a, a book right after the election so I can share all my results and studies. And I have a good Irish person editing my book so I don't make any stupid spelling mistakes. So, You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.